Sometimes when we have such a a large and diverse congregation, it's hard to know what's going on in different ministries. If you're a senior adult and you don't have anyone in the preschool ministry, then you may not know what's going on, and vice versa. Sometimes our preschool families don't know what God is doing in our joy senior adult ministry. So over the next few weeks, we're going to show some of these videos. Again, just say, man, look what God is doing. Sometimes we sit together in staff meeting and we start to hear stories of what God is doing in different ministries. And we think even we don't know all the things. There's no way our church family can know all of the great things that are occurring. So aren't you thankful for Renee and her leadership in our preschool ministry? And Renee is, is not be able, she's not hearing me right now because she's in the preschool area. And she goes, if you really love me, you'd get out on time um, because that would lessen the amount of time. Greg, you would agree with that, wouldn't you? Um, so let me ask you a question. How many of you, by show of hands, grew up in a town where there was some scary legend? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it was a haunted house or there was a, a killer dog or an old lady that would kidnap. Raise your hand if you grew up with a legend like that. All right. I definitely did. You remember it was those stories that whenever you would go spend the night, at least this is what guys would do, you'd spend the night at other people's homes and when it got real late, you'd start saying, now you remember that old lady's house and that was spooky and that's what was going on? Well, today in the stage of life where we're living, um, the favorite book that both of our children love is called The Berenstein Bears. Y'all heard of The Berenstein Bears before, I'm sure. Um, and Noah got a book recently um, called Trick or Treat. Now, if you're against Halloween, don't tell me. This is not what this is about, all right? Um, this is just a book that's about Berenstein Bears, all right? And so in this book, we were reading it to him, and Bar- Brother Bear wants to go trick or treating, but Brother Bear, he's too old now to go with mom and dad. So he says, hey, I want to go by myself. I want to go with my friends. And mom and dad, you just let me do this. So the agreement that that mother and father bear make is you can draw out your own little map and you can show us where you're going to go. And as long as we approve of where you're going to go trick-or-treating, we'll let you do it. So they go and they draw up this map and they bring it back to, to mother and father bear. And they can tell that they've intentionally skipped out on one lady's house. And her name is Ms. McGriz. Real man, it takes a lot to work for a children's book, right? Um, so that's the name of, of this lady. So they ask him, why, why are you skipping out of Ms. McGriz's house? And they say, oh, well, mom, everyone knows she's a witch, right? And so the law, story goes on and they end up going to her house and find out that she's a sweet old lady that invites them in and, and gives them candy apples, which I'm thinking, that's terrible advice. Don't we say never go into someone's house and don't eat the candy apples? But that's what they do. Um, this book was written when neighborhoods were still safe, I guess. Um, so they go in the house, and of course, the moral to the story is sometimes things that look scary or things that look unusual, that once we understand a little bit more about them, they're not as scary. They're not as unusual. One of the things that we're going to talk about, speaking of unusual, is I grew up in a church where we always refer to the third person of the Trinity as the Holy Ghost. How many of you referred to the Holy Ghost growing up, right? Now, Let's just go and be honest here. That's kind of creepy, right? I mean, God the Father, I got. I'm good with God the Father. I can love God. He's my, he's my Father. Jesus the Son, man, good. Got it. But how in the world did a ghost make his way into the third part of the Trinity, right? Now, when I, whenever I would see people who were, seemed to really tune in and focus on the Holy Ghost, which from now on I'm going to refer to as the Holy Spirit, just so you know, they just seem to do some strange things, especially when I watched them on television. 
They didn't worship the way that I was used to worshiping in First Baptist Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Now, before I go any further, let me make sure I, <clears throat> I make this point clear. I'm not saying everything that we did at First Baptist Church Paducah was right, okay? Now that I look back on my time growing up, I, I remember some strange things that we did, and maybe you did this as well. One of the things I remember is if you were a guest, they gave you the sticker that was about this long that said, I'm a visitor, and you would wear that sticker, and then they would say, if you're a guest of ours, would you stand, everyone else stay seated, and let's all look at you and focus on you, let's clap for you, and then they'd give them a rose. What in the world were we thinking? Like, do you really think that's going to make someone feel welcome? Oh, man, I can't wait to go back to that church. I get a rose and a sticker, and everybody, all eyeballs are on me. So again, I, I'm not saying that everything we did was right, but these people on TV that you know who I'm talking about, they would emphasize the Holy Spirit. They just did some unusual things. They would run around the sanctuary and they would yell and they would have these seem to be like electrical charges that would go through their body. And it just didn't seem anywhere near what I was used to in my worship service. My fear, however, is that in an attempt to avoid going overboard and focusing on the Holy Spirit, that many times the Baptist church, we've gone the other way in the pendulum swinging, and we avoid talking about him altogether out of fear that if we talk about the Holy Spirit, maybe we'll be grouped with the group of people that we don't really understand and we don't really focus on. Sure, we always say that we believe in the Holy Spirit. He's the third person in the Trinity, but kind of like Ms. McGriz, let's just seek to avoid the Holy Spirit. Nothing to see here. Let's focus on God. Let's focus on Jesus. And by the way, we'll just throw in, yeah, we believe in the Holy Spirit, but we're not really sure what his role is. We're not really sure his purpose and his function in our life. So what we're going to do in this short two-part series, it's just today and next Sunday before we get ready for the Christmas season, is we're going to focus on the Holy Spirit. Today, our goal is to answer three questions. Number one, who is the Holy Spirit? Secondly, what does he do? And third, how can you receive what the Holy Spirit gives? It's important that we answer those three questions, which will set the stage for next Sunday when we're all full and tired after eating turkey, right? And we're going to answer the question of what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? So we're going to begin this morning in John chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me. If you don't, there should be a Bible in front of you. Um, and we would love for you to look at that. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, take one of those that's in front of you. And we would love for that to be your own personal Bible. And we'll replace that with another one. Um, but we're going to be in John chapter 14 from the words of Jesus. We're going to read verses 16 through 26. So in honor of the reading of God's word, let's stand together and let's see what Jesus has to say about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Again, John chapter 14, I'll begin in verse 16. Jesus says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So the first question that I want us to, to really wrestle with this morning is, who exactly is the Holy Spirit? Now, in order to understand who the Holy Spirit is, we need to get back to the basics. And what we see all throughout Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is the personal divine resident of the Christian's heart. As soon as you repent of your sins and you trust Christ as Savior, you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of you permanently. So let's focus on, on two aspects of who the Holy Spirit is. First, we need to understand that the, the Holy Spirit is personal. Now, Jesus never refers to the Holy Spirit as an it. It's easy for us to do, though, wouldn't it? To call the Holy Spirit an it as if we refer to him as if he is a force or as if he is a, a thing. But every time in Scripture you see Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, he refers to the Holy Spirit as he. Look at verse 17, what we just read. It says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him, speaking of the Holy Spirit, one, nor knows him twice, you know him, three, for he, three, four times, dwells with you and will be with you. Four times, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as he. Now, I've got a lot to get through because trying to get the Holy Spirit into two messages is a lot to, to try to accomplish. But in order to do that, I just want you to write down these scripture references that we don't have time to read each one, but trying to show you how the Bible clearly says that the Holy Spirit is a person. In Acts 8.29, we see the Holy Spirit speaks. In 1 Corinthians 12.11, He gives spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 4.30, it says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10.29, we can outrage the Holy Spirit. Romans 15.30, the Holy Spirit loves. And Romans 8.26-27, the Holy Spirit helps us. You just look at that list right there and you can see this is not the work of an it. This is not a force. This is not a thing. This is a living person. He's not just a force. But not only is the Holy Spirit a person, the second thing we must understand is that He's God. We can't stop by understanding that He's just a person. The Holy Spirit is also God, the third part of the Trinity. In verse 16 of what we just read, chapter 14, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you, this next two words are important, another helper to be with you forever. Now, your translation may say another counselor, and we're going to get to that word helper or counselor in just a moment, but I want us to look at the word that precedes helper or counselor, and that is the word what? Another. So if Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you another counselor, another helper, what does it mean? Then what he's saying is saying, listen, guys, I'm a counselor. I'm a helper, and the Holy Spirit, he is another counselor. He is another helper here. Now, you got to remember, what is it that got Jesus in trouble? What is it that got Jesus on the cross? 
wasn't his miracles, wasn't the teachings. It was the fact that he claimed to be equal with God. That was blasphemy to the Jewish people. That Jesus himself would say that you are on par, that you are God in the flesh. So now in John chapter 8, we see that there's this teaching moment that Jesus has. He's, he's teaching um, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he makes this statement um, proving that he is God in the flesh. He says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and he uses this phrase, I am. And of course, he's very deliberate in using that phrase because it reminds them, it goes back to how God referred to himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So all throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus clearly says that, that I am equal to God. And now, here in John chapter 14, he now has the audacity to say, not just that I am God, but now I'm sending you another helper, and he too is equal to God. So the Holy Spirit's a person. The Holy Spirit is God. You say, Blake, why are you spending so much time making sure that we understand that the Holy Spirit's personal, the Holy Spirit is God? Well, friends, it's because of this. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as long as you think the Holy Spirit is a force, as long as you think the Holy Spirit is an emotion, then you're going to think that all it takes is singing the right song and getting some lasers and some smoke and some lights and having a really good preacher that's going to preach really loud and just get the music to the right spot, then we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. But when you understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit is God, then it drastically changes what you understand it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't just some feeling, tingly feeling that you get or some electrical charge that makes you do crazy things. That's not what Scripture says. But you have to understand, first and foremost, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. I love the way that Jared Wilson in his book, um, Supernatural Power for Everyday People, listen to what he says about the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit can't be pumped and scooped. He can't be slung around, gathered up, or dispensed. He's not pixie dust. There's no such thing as the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is not a thing at all. But the very presence of the personal God himself with us, in us, and around us. So that's who the Holy Spirit is. But what is it that the Holy Spirit does? What's his role in our life? In the passage that we just read, Jesus gave two specific functions for what the Holy Spirit does. In verse 16, Jesus says that he's a helper or a counselor. In verse 17, he tells us that he is the spirit of truth. We're going to work backwards. I want to look at verse 17 first, and then we'll go back to 16. What does it mean that Jesus is the spirit? I mean, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Well, another foundational statement that we must understand about the Holy Spirit before we'll be able to, to fully grasp what his role is in our life is we must understand that the Holy Spirit, literally, that he is the author of the Bible. You say, what do you mean? Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were what? Carried along by, read those last three words, the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 6, verse 63, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and 
life. The words of Jesus that we read in the Bible, they were produced by the Spirit. And the Bible tells us that if we receive these words, that if we will trust in these words, that we will inherit eternal life. Not earn it, not gain it, but we will inherit it as a gift from the Lord. See, the bottom line is that the Holy Spirit, at one level, is the author of all the Scriptures. So we have to understand that. The Holy Spirit is the one who speaks these truths. So He's not only the author of the Scripture, but you got to take it to the next level and understand, but He's also the lens through which we read and understand Scripture. Let me try to, to give you an analogy here. The Holy Spirit's kind of like reading glasses. Now, at my house, the number one thing that, that we are into, really been the last probably a year or so, is the Grinch. Have you all seen the, the, movie, the new movie, The Grinch? If you haven't, you need to take your kids, your grandkids. It's a great movie. But at our house, we watch and we listen to The Grinch uh, 12 months a year, okay? We love The Grinch. We're always listening to it. So when we knew the new movie was coming out, we went with some friends two weeks ago on the very first day that that movie came out, all right? Now, before it came out, there was this special thing that IHOP was doing, and they were serving Grinch pancakes, so we obviously had to go. I think there's some picture. Um, we, we, we wore, you see, we had a shirt. We, we go all out for Grinch pancakes. And then we have sugar comas. You probably have diabetes just from seeing this picture. And I apologize for that. Um, so we went to go see the, we went to go have some Grinch pancakes two weeks ago tonight. And while we were there, Lindsay was like, what's that say on the bottom of the menu? And I was trying to read it. And I said, they, they print it too small. I can't read it. So she grabs it from me and she reads it just like that. And I realized my worst fear was happening. <laughs> I've always been told when you turn 40 years old that your reading up close gets a little more difficult and you have to get what? Reading glasses. Well, I'm 38 and a half, so that time is quickly approaching. But you know, the point is, if you were to go buy some reading glasses, if you're like me, go to Walmart for $1.50 and get them, um, and you, you have those reading glasses you wouldn't just put them on your desk and say, hey, come in here. I want you to see how great these glasses, they look awesome, would you? That's not the purpose of the glasses. The purpose of the glasses, are, what are you supposed to do with them? Put them on. And you don't focus on, look how cool the lenses are, look at the frames. No, the, the, the reason you wear them is because it changes everything that you see through those glasses. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. See, anyone can read the Bible and gather some facts Anyone can read the Bible and say, oh, well, there's some wisdom in that. I'll take Proverbs. And whether you're a Christian or not, you can learn some great truths and lessons from Proverbs. You can learn some great moral lessons from Jesus himself. But friends, when you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and how do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? You trust Jesus as your Savior. When you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you begin to understand Scripture in a deeper way. Why? Because you're no longer just looking for facts. You're not looking for feel-good moments that'll get me through the day. No, instead, you're interpreting the rest of the world through the lens of Scripture. Scripture now becomes what I like to say your primary source for understanding the world, not your secondary source. Because through the lens of the Holy Spirit, the Scripture comes to life. It becomes living and active, and you begin to, to prioritize your life. You begin to understand the events of, of what's going on in the world through the lens of Scripture. But the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. 
If that's all the Holy Spirit did was to serve as the Spirit of truth, and He'd be nothing more than just a, an agent that you're going to use um, to come in and maybe a consultant to give you truth on, on certain areas. But He does more than just speak truth into your life. He also says in verse 16, the Holy Spirit is, is a counselor. Now, Honestly, the main passage, the, the main point of this passage in John chapter 14 is Jesus saying, I'm sending the Holy Spirit and He is going to be a counselor for you. But you have to ask yourself, what kind of counselor is He? Is He like a marriage counselor? No. Is He like a, a camp counselor, just filled with lots of fun? No, He's not just a camp counselor either. Now, let me, let me take a time out here for a second. I'm about to do something that I promised I would never, ever do as a pastor. But I want you to understand, there's a reason I'm about to do this, okay? When I was a student at Beeson, I had two preaching professors. One was Dr. Carter, who many of you know. The other was Dr. Smith, who was here last Sunday. During both of those classes, in and, and, and 201 and 202, we had to preach three mock sermons in front of not only our peers, but also our professor, Dr. Carter and Dr. Smith. You can imagine how intimidating it would be to preach in front of those two great men of the faith who are incredible um, preachers of God's Word. Well, when we would do those sermons, we would prepare and we would preach in this little chapel, and then they would record you, and then we'd go in a room and, and all your peers would, would critique you and say, here's what you did good, here's what you did bad. Um, and then you would meet with Dr. Carter or Dr. Smith, and they would watch it in front of you. And man, you talk about intimidating. Well, I can't believe you said that. Well, that was really heresy, but I still love you. Man, God, I give up. I preached heresy, you know. Um, so whatever, but they did it in a loving way. But there would be some people that would come into that classroom and their goal was just to show you how intelligent they were. I'm just going to puff you up with knowledge and I'm going to lay out the big words. And I'm going to talk about the Greek word and I'm going to show you how I can parse that word and I can go into all the, I'm going to tell you what it means in Hebrew and then I'm going to go give you all. And I remember thinking, I'll never do that. Number one, I'm not intelligent enough to do that. Um, that wasn't that funny, Chris, um, but that's all right. Um, but number two, there's just no benefit. You don't care what I know, but instead what I try to do, when I do look at the Greek and Hebrew, but I try to define it beforehand and then just put it in there. But I'm breaking that rule today because I want you to see what Jesus means when he says, I'm sending you another helper, another counselor. Here's the Greek word that's used here. It's the word parakletos. And I want you to write that word down because we're going to look at this word for just a second. That word is broken down into two different parts. The first part of that word is, is para, which means to stand alongside. And then the second part of that word, kaleo, it means to declare or to call or to argue. So when you're looking at what does Jesus mean when he's sending this parakletos, literally what he's trying to say is, I'm going to send you another legal advocate. Jesus is saying, this legal advocate that I'm sending to you, he is going to represent you. He is going to, to be loyal to you until the very end. This is a person who's going to argue for you. He's going to defend your case. He's a person who's going to plead your case. He's going to defend you against your enemies. So the question obviously is, well, why do I need a defender? What is it that I need a legal advocate for? What does Jesus even mean when he's saying that he's sending me, he's giving me a legal advocate? Here's how Tim Keller interprets the role 
of the Holy Spirit as counsel. I love this definition. The Holy Spirit's job is to defend you against the enemies here on earth, but it doesn't stop there. But especially the enemies inside your own heart. Let me try to flesh this out for a minute. Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, we all know that our hearts are naturally filled with fears. But then Jesus says, look, then in comes the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit says in the very, very next verse, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. That phrase of the Holy Spirit that He bears witness, it's a a technical word in Greek that means that He is the star witness in court. And the star witness, He comes in and He settles the case for us. What Paul is saying here is that when your heart is naturally filled with doubts, when your heart is filled with inadequacies that you have, that in comes the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit says, no, there's no reason to doubt. You are His. You are loved. Let's look at another verse of how this is fleshed out. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. John is saying that it's the Holy Spirit's job to come in and argue against your heart that is trying its best to condemn us. But why is it that our hearts For those of us who have repented and trusted in Jesus, why is it that our hearts seek to come in and condemn us? Here it is. Because grace is unnatural. Because grace doesn't make sense. Forgiveness isn't natural. Mercy, love, what Jesus has done for us, it does not make sense. And when the gospel does, when it comes in, it doesn't follow the natural order. It doesn't follow natural law. Why? Because we want to earn grace, don't we? We want to deserve God's love. We want to deserve the forgiveness that He gives us. And God's love comes in. The Holy Spirit says, no, you can't earn it. There's nothing that you can do to deserve God's love. You will never measure up. And our hearts come in and our hearts try to condemn us. And when we mess up and we do bad things, it says, see, I told you, you never will deserve God's love. You never will deserve God's grace based on your actions. But it's then that the Holy Spirit comes in and He argues on our behalf and He makes the case for us. Which, by the way, friends, listen to me. You never will be good enough. You're never going to earn God's love. That's why the message of Christianity isn't do. That's what we like to do. What can I do to earn God's love? What can I do to to feel better about where I am with the Lord? No, the message of Christianity isn't do. The message of Christianity is done. That it was done on the cross. The most important phrase in all of Christianity is three words. It is finished. The words of Jesus on the cross still ring true today. That whenever we allow our hearts to condemn us, we remember the price has been paid in full. Our debt has been paid in full. And friends, if that doesn't free you up, I don't know what will. 
to know that you're forgiven, that you are loved, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. So yes, he's a counselor. He's much more than a marriage counselor. He's much more than a camp counselor. He's your permanent legal advocate. He's a permanent friend who is willing to do interventions on you all the time. And don't we need it? Amen. Third and final, before we go eat our, our Thanksgiving meal as a church family, how can you receive what the Holy Spirit gives? It wouldn't do us a lot of good if we spent our time talking about all the, uh, of who the Holy Spirit is and what He does if we first and foremost don't understand the other counselor, the other advocate who is Jesus Christ Himself. Look again at verse 16. Verse 16 says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you, there's that phrase, another helper. So if the Holy Spirit is another helper, if He's another counselor, then, then we know there must be a first helper counselor. And who is that? It's, it's Jesus Himself. In 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if any, anyone does sin, listen to this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. By the way, that word that's used there for advocate, parakletos. That we have another counselor, another helper, another legal advocate. See, the Bible assumes that we need a legal advocate on our behalf. Why? Because we serve a God who's a just God. And when you and I stand before a just God, we stand in our own sinful flesh, apart from the Holy Spirit, we stand condemned based on our own sin. Now, I know we don't like to talk about this as a church. I know we don't like to talk about this as a, a faith family, or especially as Christians. We like to talk about that God is loving, that He's forgiving, that He's merciful, and He is all those things. But we can't forget that God is also a holy God. He's also a just God, and He sees sin, and sin must be paid for. But the good news that we see in this verse is that we have the greatest counselor, the greatest advocate, the greatest attorney, and He's standing before the court, and He's representing us. He's actually pleading the case for us. And I know what you're thinking. It's not Alexander Shannara, all right? This... I worked on that all week. I thought that would be good. No, this advocate, this attorney who's pleading the case before you, before his father, it's Jesus Christ himself. I love the way that um, a professor by the name of Charles Hodge, he was a professor of Princeton Theological Seminary back in the 1800s. And he, he defined it this way. He was talking to his class. And he was giving a lecture. And he says, here's how I would help you understand what the justice of God looks like. He says, it's if, as if um, Jesus is talking to his father. And he says, Father, this is, uh, you are, you're just. And because you're just, this sin demands payment. Here's my brother. Here's my sister. And they've sinned. They haven't loved you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They haven't loved their neighbor as themselves. And because they have sinned, we know that because you're a just God, that, that this sin must be paid for. But then he says this, but Father, here's the payment. Look at my broken body. 
Look at the blood that was shed for their sins. I have paid for their sins. Therefore, it would be unjust to get two payments for the exact same sin. I've already paid for that sin. Therefore, he says, Jesus goes before the Father. He says, I'm not pleading for mercy. No, no, no. I demand acquittal for my brother or sister because I have already paid for that sin. Therefore, there can't be any condemnation for them. I demand acquittal. Jesus is standing before the Heavenly Father who is a just God, and He's not pleading for mercy because the price has already been paid. No, He's pleading for justice because we have trusted Jesus Christ and He has paid the payment for you. See, I I got this the other day. I'm going to try to get it for you. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion. See these scales? In every other religion, we look at that and we say, oh, well, I'm going to look at my good and my bad. I'm going to put my good deeds on one side and my bad deeds on the other side. And in the end, I sure hope that my good outweighs my bad and that'll be where I go. That's not Christianity. What Christianity does is God comes and through the grace of Jesus, he tips the scales. And he says, my blood, the son, my son paid the penalty. And the justice of God, if we trust Christ as our Savior, is on our side. And there's nothing you can do, good or bad, that will ever tip those scales in the different direction. When you trust Jesus as your Savior, He becomes your legal advocate. What does that mean? It means that the justice of God is on your side. The scales are tipped. And like I said, there's no amount of good, there's no amount of bad that can ever change those scales. So Jesus, He's your advocate in heaven. The Holy Spirit is our advocate while we're here on earth. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 16. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. And here's the last sentence. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. If I were to boil all of this down into one simple sentence, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? Here it is. Point us to Jesus. That's His role. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus. Hear me on this. The role of the Holy Spirit isn't to say, look at me, look at the cool things I can do, look what I can, I can put the spotlight on you. If that's your role of the Holy Spirit, you're thinking of the Holy Spirit as a force, not as a person. The Holy Spirit's job is to come in and say, guys, look at Jesus. Look what Jesus has done for you. Don't fear. There's nothing that can be done to change the fact that you are mine, that you have been redeemed. Friends, the Holy Spirit is our advocate here on earth, pointing us to Jesus, who is our advocate, pleading our case to the Father. Would you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you so much for the promise that you have given us to never leave us nor never forsake us. And we thank you for the sacrifice of sending your son to come and to pay the penalty that was ours, the debt that we owed, that he paid it in full. And I pray that if there is one here today that has never trusted in your Son as Lord and Savior, that today 
They would repent of their sin. They would confess, admit their sin. And they would turn and run to the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. The grace that he freely offers to those who will come and confess their sins and receive him as Lord and Savior. Lord, for those of us who have received you, I pray that we would continually be focused on what it means to honor you. We thank you for giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the deposit, the guarantee of what's to come. And I pray that we would live in fellowship with the Spirit so that we are honoring you in all that we say and all that we do. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.